You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. You're listening to the We Are Libertarians network. Learn more at wearelibertarians.com. Episode number 242 of East Central Favorite Podcast. I'm Jeremiah Morrill. Today I'm joined by uh, executive video producer uh, Zach Burcham, my forever co-host Dakota Davis, and a cast. What's going on, man? That's right. Today in the studio, we have uh, both of the candidates that are seeking the Libertarian Party of Indiana nomination for the United States Senate seat. Uh, on Jeremiah's right, we have James. How do you pronounce your last name, James? Ceniac. Yep. Ceniac. All you right. You can think scenic scenes with Ceniac. It's also a tagline. So. All right. And then we also have Mr. William Henry, Will Henry, um, on my left. If you're watching the video, we're going to be talking to both of these guys about issues that the country is facing and their opinions on them. This is not a formal debate, more of just a conversation between the two candidates so that you can decide at the Libertarian Party of Indiana State Convention, which is coming up in the month of March, uh, just a couple weeks, or one week away. Yeah, or it's a week uh, a week from Saturday is the big decision day. Uh, this yeah. show is about our lives in rural Indiana. We're here to push your boundaries and make you think as individuals. Sometimes we'll provoke you. Other times we'll make you laugh. Hopefully you'll always learn something new. If you're a uh, member of our Patreon, you got to hear an old standby routine of me bullying my co-host. How'd it go, Dakota? Did you enjoy it? I got it done. You did. You, you complied, and yeah. uh, and it's official. It's uh, you're you're going to do something with the patrons. That's right, against it, your will. To find out what Jeremiah bullied me into, you have to go to patreon.com slash bosshogofliberty, or just go to bosshogofliberty.com and find the support now button. Uh, that's where you can go to support the show every month. That's how we pay the bills around here. The electric bill. Uh, the heat is all electric, so that's you know we're coming out of the heating that's, season. That's right, just in just in time for the war to start. It's been high, so we have to you know we got to make up for that somewhere. We also have rent to pay around here. The dues get the dues get paid every month to make sure that this show gets put out every week to you, the listeners. So to support us once again, bosshogofliberty dot com. Find the support now button. If you support at $50 or more a month, then you get a shout out at the front of every episode. And those folks are Miss Christy Avery from all the way in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Mr. Jonathan Phillips, who's our favorite car dealer in the continental United States, Andy Moore Buick, GMC, and Fishers. And then the amazing trucker himself, the man who supplies us with memes while he's on the road, Mr. Anthony Meyer. I heard uh, Anthony needs a new turbo for his truck. It's not is that uh, the problem. It's not good today. You it's, said last it's not week good. That he was having issues. Yeah, it's uh, he's he's reporting some turbo some turbo issues. Well, that's never good. Uh, it seems like that's the first thing to go on diesel engines, anyways. The turbo always happens. Um, the man operates in in Minnesota and Wisconsin in the wintertime, so I, I'm yeah. sure it's not good on the equipment. <laughs> we also have a sponsor for the candidate series, which the candidate series is going to be starting. Uh, two weeks from today, this is kind the, of uh, the Henry County ballot. Yeah, the candidate Henry series. County. This is this is also series. a candidate series of sorts. Uh, yeah, definitely the federal candidate series. Well, b- bigger candidates. These have these guys have more people to reach than the folks that we're having on two weeks from now in the Henry County candidate series. We just want to give them a shout out at the front of this episode too, just to make sure that they know that they are special. 
Um, those folks are at Wyland's Flowers here in Henry County. Um, I got Audrey a beautiful bouquet from there of roses for Valentine's Day. You know, Zach, uh, Zach made me look bad and he ordered some, some Wyland's Flowers for, for April for Valentine's Day. I uh, did. But they're incredible people. Yeah. Uh, so by four o'clock, they, uh, they had a bouquet over to Sarah as well. We just got off of the cruise and I didn't have a mm-hmm. lot of time. But wow, they, Sarah, last they, minute. They worked, a, they worked a miracle, and thankfully, our dog did not kill the flower delivery guy, but he was somewhat terrified oh, yeah. of, of, uh, of our mutts. We also have the Slick Pickle, which is Newcastle's own party bus, and then Big Bounce Inflatables, where you can rent all of your uh, bounce house party needs. And uh, also, T-Chip stores to get your Boss Hog Liberty merchandise, tchip.com slash bho1234 or mug. Um we also have a link tree for that. That's on the website. And the producer Zach is going to put that in the live stream chat to make it easy for you. So to get to introducing our candidates, uh, why don't we start with you, James? Um, tell us a little bit about yourself. Tell us about your background and how you got in the Libertarian Party. Yeah, definitely. So I'm James Siniak and I'm a behavior therapist. So I work with kids with autism and we do a lot of behavior and social skills. So I'm absolutely excited to take some of these skills to uh, politics and using that. As far as the Libertarian Party, I really followed um, politics a lot, mostly from the Republican side. From a very early age, uh, the Twin Towers made a huge impact on me. And ever since then, following like George W. Bush and following how politics works was one of my priorities. So looking at the Libertarian Party, you know, I heard about Rupert. I heard about different candidates. But Gary Johnson was the one that really won me over. And when I realized that uh, the most sensible talking points were coming from the Libertarian Party. I, I followed along. And then when I saw Rainwater Run, I realized in Indiana what was going on with the how huge we were becoming and the aspects of that. So I went from a little L following Gary Johnson to, you know, really committed last year. So I uh, did a lot with his campaign as far as um, donations, following his watch parties, et cetera, and then getting my friends excited about it. And so after that, I decided to make a commitment to the party. So I became a national uh, party member. I became a lifetime Indiana member. I became a 1994 society member. And most importantly, I really like to point out that I became a local member because that's where change is really made. And I love, you know, serving our neighbors. So the libertarian aspect of that and serving in Johnson County has been awesome. And we have a great chair down there, Matt. So that's kind of a, where I came from following Gary Johnson to becoming a committed uh, libertarian member. All right. And the uh, same question to you, Will. Yeah, I'm Will Henry. Um, I'm a U.S. Army veteran. I was a journalist. Uh, I served in Afghanistan and Kuwait. I worked full-time at the Joint Force Headquarters uh, for the Indiana National Guard for a number of years, working with the governor's office and uh, some of these other state emergency uh, uh, agencies to be able to coordinate a National Guard response and be able to cover that as far as communications goes and, and journalism. Um Went on those couple deployments, got a lot of skills under my belt, um, brought those back with me, started working with organizations like the American Legion, uh, started to apply that in the communications realm with the Legion, and then started to work in the advocacy and administration portion of the organization. So after working in the advocacy and administrative portion, um, I really pushed a lot of uh, veterans' issues across the finish line for a lot of veterans' organizations. We binded together and really got our um, priorities in order and, and really brought it to the legislature so they could understand what the veterans needed in the state. So 
um, being able to move that. Uh, it was a very successful few years that we had in, at the state house doing that. And uh, we got a lot of things covered, you know, for veterans and, and really during that portion of time, you know, libertarianism started to become more apparent to me working in the organizational sector and working into the uh, advocacy and activism. There are a lot of libertarians who, you know, care about those things and are active in the organization. So, um, started to become aware of the, the libertarian message, started to get more involved with the cannabis scene, uh, after the veteran stuff, help expose some wrongdoing and fraud, waste, abuse at the state, uh, agencies for the Indiana Department of Veterans Affairs and things like that. Um, you know, and really started to get into the cannabis scene. Um, and that's where I really, uh, started to come in close in contact with a lot of more libertarians and started to, really look into that and, and read into it and understand what that was and, and, and to realize myself that, that I was a libertarian and I hadn't even realized, you know, that, uh, I, I was stuck in the duopoly. I thought the two parties were my only two choices and wasn't getting that message down to my individual level until, uh, really started getting active in, in advocacy and activism in the state. And will to remind myself, you've, you joined the party in 2020, is that right? In the 2020 cycle, and you were on the statewide ticket. Yeah, and that was really when I first started getting hands-on involved with the with the party. A lot of my stuff was just kind of organizational, um, you know, aspects where we could, you know, meet and and a lot of libertarians pushing for cannabis reform. You know, you have those interactions. Uh, and then you get, you know, sucked into the party too, because you really want to start making a difference and having those advocacy roles and learning the roles of the government and having those type of skills, you know, gained and that knowledge gained was really applicable once I started to get into the political scene. So I had uh, one question on here that I thought was a, a good opener. Um, with libertarians on the ballot, we've talked about it a lot. Um, a big part of running for statewide office or a national office as a libertarian is just your messaging, trying to get libertarian messaging out on a statewide platform or a, a debate stage against mainstream candidates and getting into mainstream news cycles. So um, we can start with you, Will. Um, why do you think that you would be the best to the best candidate to represent the Libertarian Party of Indiana? On the ballot, I have the skills and experience uh, from the state government and the knowledge from the federal government and advocacy and activism too. Uh, I've been very uh, busy in those in those realms and in those sectors. Um, really, just the ability to to organize and uh, get people together and pushing in the same direction and. You know, a lot of what I did with the veterans realm, those organizations hadn't really been communicative together. Um, they were having a lot of beef between the organizations too. But to be able to bring those organizations together and in, in those capacities to be able to work together was a real challenge because there was years and years and years of, of things going on. But to be able to do that um, really showed that organizational ability uh, to bring these parties together who don't necessarily see eye to eye on everything, but we have common goals that we need to reach. And to be able to, to take those kind of skills and apply them directly are the type of experience and knowledge that I have, uh, as well as, you know, I'm, I have a good connection with the media across the state already with the veterans uh, realm and, and the cannabis community as well. 
Um, I've done a lot of, um, you know, work in the communications and media as well, commentating on veterans issues, uh, Afghan issues and things like that in the local medias. And we need to be seen out front shoulder to shoulder with the other two parties too. And that is, you know, we're seeing a little more of that with the Libertarian Party here in, in central Indiana, uh, with Mark Rutherford and some of these folks being invited on some of the panels and we get a libertarian perspective on that. Uh, we need more of that. We need to coordinate more of that and we need to make the libertarian message more, um, you know, uh, more applicable to, to people so they could, you know, get rid of some of these stereotypes and some of these you know, perspectives that aren't necessarily correct about the party. So, James, tell me about how you, how you use the platform as the libertarian party's nominee. Yeah, definitely. So the first two words that come to mind is public service and everything I've done as far as my occupation is about serving others. And I want to serve the LPIN. I want to help us to grow. And that's my pro growth campaign. So the aspect is, is when I decided to run, I wanted to use the experiences that I've had from the past and utilize it to grow the LPIN. So the first thing I looked at is how do we build campaign teams? And I brought members onto my team and I said, Hey, you have the willingness, let's give you the skills. And this isn't even just about my campaign. It was about being able to take these individuals, grow their experience, and be able to take them to other candidates in the future. So the pro-growth aspect on the candidate front, I want to build those teams so that others can utilize them. And then additionally, help to grow the LPIN through the affiliates. So that's being committed on the Johnson County level, but also going around the whole state and looking at best practices and what each county is doing correctly and what sometimes different counties need help with. So, you know, connecting resources, utilizing our knowledge that we already have around the state by helping those who aren't sure who to ask or where to ask. So growing the LPIN has been my number one priority. I've been doing this since July. I'm excited for it. In addition to that, coming from the Republican side, I've run with uh, state Senate campaigns as far as I was on the ballot, but I was volunteering behind. So I have the experience of how to run a campaign. I knew the skills that are acquired for this. So I wanted to take that to the Libertarian Party. And that's uh, essentially what I was about. So serving the LPIN, it's not about what the nomination could do for me. It's about what I can do f- with the nomination for the LPIN. And that's shining the spotlight on other candidates. It's helping us grow. And I'm absolutely thrilled to do this. So, yeah, in the last two uh, U.S. Senate cycles, Lucy Brenton has has carried that torch. And you've got, I guess, the, the opportunity to participate in some statewide debates through the Indiana De- Debate Commission. Correct. Yeah. So the, one other thing with uh, the LPIN is the Donald Rainwater gubernatorial campaign in 2020, which was seen as a giant success. I think it, that got uh, national libertarian party absolutely uh, a success. media coverage. Um, so yeah, that was a big deal. I think that that puts the LPIN in a pretty good position as it sits right now. So the question for both of you guys, and we can start with you, James is how you would take that platform, that foundation that was built by the rainwater campaign and how you would use that, the messaging in that campaign to help your Senate race. I think it's important real quick before you start, yep. it's important for the audience to know that uh, the Don and the rainwater campaign did finish second in, in this County and many others. I think they were um, 20, 21 or 22% in Henry yeah, County. 21% in Henry yeah. County. I mean, just massive, massive numbers and opportunity to be the first statewide candidate to come back on the ballot since then. Absolutely. So the Rainwater campaign did a lot of things right. They uh, ran a very well done state race. And what I looked at is how they communicated to Hoosiers and how do we attract that vote through not just libertarians, but Hoosiers across the state. 
And so that's what I want to take on the federal level is using those communication abilities and looking at the issues that really matter to Hoosiers. So, you know, when I was prioritizing my issues, I was looking at, okay, do Hoosiers care about this issue and how can I communicate it well to them? A lot of times as libertarians, we come up with ideas, um, but we don't present solutions well. And that's being able to just communicate and let them know that we're there to serve them and give them solid solutions that are libertarian. And Rainwater did that well. He did that well with the mask mandates. And I'm going to do that on the federal level with my three issues that I'm absolutely excited to present to Hoosiers because I think it will resonate with them and they'll see real solutions and it's coming from a libertarian. All right. And well, as a member of the Rainwater campaign... Yeah, uh, how being on yeah being on that ticket was an absolute you know uh, thrill. It was a very big privilege to be included in that uh, on that ticket. I'm very proud of that campaign and, and that whole campaign team did absolutely phenomenal. And it was very fluid and, and it came together very well. And that was because of a huge grassroots effort across the state uh, to push that you know campaign forward, and it worked. And uh, we had you know so much uh, movement throughout the state, and now we have um, you know voting data to go back, and now we have all of these active affiliates working throughout the state, and that you know we created an energy throughout the state, and and that is still being shown today with all of these affiliates standing up, reaffiliating, uh, getting busy, um, and and we've seen that um, throughout the state travels. The thousands of miles that we've driven across the state in the, in, in my current campaign, I can see that these folks have, uh, really organized and they're starting to get themselves together. They have agendas. They're starting to uh, go through their bylaws and make changes and, and adapt their organizations to what their needs are at the local level. And that's really so important because at the local level is where we're going to have a lot of impact on viable candidates. And that is a lot of, uh, there's a lot of uncontested um, uh, slots throughout the state at the county and local levels that are open. And really getting uh, folks, orga- you know, energized and, and getting their names out there onto these ballots and signing up for some of these positions are going to be key, but also keeping those affiliates going and active throughout the year and making sure that they're organized and, and continuing doing that public service type of things too. So as, as Dakota and I were talking about some of the topics that we wanted to cover, and this is just a, you know, these are just general ideas. And if you guys have other issues that are, you're putting at the forefront of your campaign, I want to get into those as well tonight. Uh, but an issue that Dakota, Dakota and I had a, 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 I pushed back a, a we had a, we had a spat today. Uh, and he's like, I'm tired of talking about COVID. The show said, notes were late because <laughs> the show notes were late because of what we're going to get into later, which is uh, Russia invading Ukraine. Yeah. And that was, it's been on my mind all day and I've been doing a lot of reading and it's like, all of a sudden it was like two o'clock and I hadn't started show notes yet. And I was like, ah, so then Jeremiah is like COVID-19. And I was like, how you expect me to talk about (laughs) COVID-19 when Russia has invaded Ukraine? (laughs) That's just the news of the day, man. It's, it's, it's important, but you know, I think, I think the 2020 election was shaped greatly by COVID and, and to say, okay, you know what? I think that we're done. Wave three is over. Omicron is, is, that's the end of it. And we don't have to worry about it or think about it as we select our, our next federal candidates. I think it's, that may be short sighted. And obviously we've seen a lot of government power used in the last two and a half years revolving around COVID. Uh, And I know the state of Indiana hasn't let go of that yet. So 
I know it's important to me to hear uh, from each of you, and I I can't remember where we're at as far as the baton. I, I I think maybe Will is, is should Will get the next question? I, I've lost yeah, track. Sure. sure. All right, we're informal here, so if, James, if I'm treating you unfairly, just you know. <laughs> no, I me. think it was his turn actually. All right. So all right. So where do you stand, Will? Or I, I'm, you're maybe COVID fatigued out too at this point, but well, I, I I still want to hear a little bit, I guess. I'm in a little. I'm in a kind of a unique perspective because I actually helped handle a lot of the specimen for uh, these vaccine trials at laboratory uh, down in Indianapolis. And in that work, in in the six months that I was working at that laboratory, we had the peak of of the PCR testing and the swab testing coming in, and the peak of the vaccine trial specimen coming in, and to the point where this laboratory ran out of freezer space. And we're storing everything on, you know, palletized on dry ice inside of every floor, you know, every bit of floor space inside of here um, to see, you know, and to go through all of that and to see how fast some of these pharmaceutical companies have pushed their stuff to the front because the larger pharmaceutical companies were able to pay more to have their stuff front loaded. That's why we only have a few vaccines right now approved from these larger vaccine, you know, companies because they were able to pay to front load their stuff. And the, those studies got completed first and, and that data got to the FDA first as well out of this, you know, laboratory that I worked at. And I, you know, when you see that happening, that's profits being put in front of, you know, people. And that is just an effort of, of a lot of money being pushed forward. Um, and in that, you know, understanding how that operation happened, you know, and that happened and, and also knowing that June in 2019, they renamed the pandemic all hazards and innovation act of 2019. They added the pandemic in there to have a set of standard to react to something pandemic. And this is an extension off the Patriot act stuff too, on down with the emergency services personnel being able to react uh, Homeland Security and, and all of these other um, emergency agencies that were created after the Patriot Act. This was not by accident. This was by di- design, which what happened. And you can go back through the legislature and you can see um, these steps being taken to being able to kind of flex this type of uh, authoritative executive authoritative control uh, because of the legislature giving that authority to the executive branch. And that's what happened over the last 20 years since the Patriot Act had been enabled and it, and it has grown to this point. Um, if you go back and look at that, uh, that, uh, that policy that was passed in 2019, it was June, 2019. Um, you'll see that they changed the requirements for the pandemic and added pandemic to that. And, and, um, it, it just, you know, nine months later, they're enacting uh, that type of that emergency order. So is there a specific change forward looking, assuming you're the United States senator from Indiana dealing with pandemic response that you would want to see happen? Yes. And that is exactly what we were doing before this response. And that was those who are sick, isolate yourself. Those who are at risk, isolate yourself, protect yourself. And the, that shouldn't have changed. That that type of uh, the response shouldn't have changed. There was really no reason because uh, it was just as deadly as cold and flu in our environment. And those who were at risk had another uh, risk in their environment. So why would we completely change everyone's daily lives to react to a virus in our environment that is no more deadly than cold or flu and the vaccine obviously is no more effective than the cold or flu uh, vaccine either to completely change our lives because of that. Um, 
I can see, I can go back and, and look at these pieces of, of legislation that have passed to increase that reach of government down to the individual level. All right, let's hear from let's hear from James on the uh, on the on the COVID envelope here. Yeah, definitely. Well, anyone can see that the government overreached on this. That's uh, you don't have to be on any inside, but it's clear violation of individual rights. And on the federal level. And we can see that with vaccinations, right? It was a conspiracy theory. Oh, they're going to mandate vaccination cards, whatever, blah, blah, blah. But no, we're seeing it in real time where Biden tried it. The courts pushed back, but there's still a lot of legal issues. So we're clearly not over this aspect of medical freedom. And so that's something that I want to take to the Senate with my Medical Freedom Act. And the idea is, is that politicians should absolutely not be our physicians, there's clear reasons why, but they cannot make blanket medical decisions for Hoosiers or all across America. And if you take any pill bottle, throw them, any of your cabinets, you look at it. Same thing with vaccinations, by the way. You'll see side effects, right? And side effects are very real consequences to taking medications. They're there because somebody negatively was affected somewhere. So they aren't just made up, but they do happen to people and individuals. So when we make a medical decision for ourselves, we have to weigh the consequences. And often the benefits do outweigh the consequences. So we make those decisions based on our guidance with our physician. But that's a personal decision that absolutely needs to be made by an individual. So politicians need to take a step back. They need to understand that the power belongs to the individual when it comes to medical decisions. So my Medical Care Act is just that. It's putting it back into the hands of the people. So on the Senate level, that's what I would do. Um, additionally, with you know, just understanding and putting um, communication out, you know, numbers, we can talk about how COVID actually was a little bit more deadly than the flu. But there are responsible actions that as individuals we can take. Those are, you know, making sure that you're well when you're going out in public. Um, if a business asks you to wear a mask, politely wear a mask. It's not that hard of an issue to be responsible around others and to respect other people's decisions. So the what I kind of had the drum I've been beating for the last six to nine months on this on this program is that if the federal government was actually serious about dealing with this, it would be hey make sure that people have tests at home, get them to them, pass out in, you know, N95 masks, get them to them. And the federal government did finally do that. My test is my test kit sitting right there in my backpack, just, just out of the sh- a camera shot. Mine showed up yesterday. It, it arrived. Yeah. It arrived yesterday. Uh, so I, I signed up for them. They were supposed to be available in the new year. Uh, is this the federal government that we're signing up for? This is the, you, you want to sign up to be a part of this mess, James? <laughs> Absolutely not. I mean, it is a mess. And as, I, as our, uh, our syndicator said, thanks for, thanks for the COVID test. I've healed now. Uh, I'm good, but uh, Spengel will get it three or four more times. He's, he's, he's already had it three times. But the issue is, is most politicians did not go to medical school, right? Um, I have a sister that's a doctor of PT. I understand by watching her the process of a lot of these medical decisions and how they're made by physicians and individuals as well. So federal government needs to stay out of those. Um, but they do and can get us resources. Uh, the COVID response as far as giving the test to kids, I believe that could help prevent the spread. I mean, if you're feeling a little bit tickle in your throat, take a test. If you pass, um, or if you're negative, you can go out. If you're positive, stay home, be responsible. It's pretty simple. Um, but there are solutions that we can work for, even on the federal level. Well, no, one thing, last thing on the COVID-19 front is um, 
there's been a concerted effort from the current administration to uh, pull back the um, monoclonal antibody treatments that have uh, helped a lot of people. There's some evidence that it's not working as well for Omicron, but Omicron requires way less treatment regardless. Uh, but they were, did work really well for Delta, but we're going to stop making those. Um, I want to know like your guys' opinions on like treatments, like what, what you think the federal government could have done to help like educate people on treatments and staying healthy and things like that. If they did a relatively decent job, Dakota wants things to know if he's letting have his horse I think that's what he's asking. What? They, they are, you, are you letting to have your horse warmer? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I want the government to provide me ivermectin with my test kit. And that's where the medical freedom and, and personal sovereignty aspect comes in. Um, for individuals to choose whatever they'd like uh, to be their their whatever they you know choose, that's a personal decision. That should be a per, you know a human right as an individual to make that decision, and medical. Um, you know, the, if something is is working for someone and it's not, you know, uh, why are we why are, would we stand in the way of that or even trials uh, to even stand in the way of some of these uh, other things like hyperbaric oxygen therapy? The FDA doesn't want to use that off label, and insurance companies won't pay that, but yet um, it works for conditions. The FDA doesn't want to admit that those work for conditions, just like cannabis. The FDA doesn't want to admit that cannabis works for conditions. Phytocannabinoids treat people's endocannabinoid deficiencies. It's a fact. It's science. And it's becoming more known now. In in the next couple of years, we'll see more of that. But these type of uh, medications, um, they should be uh, continued to be used if there's a market for them. And there's no, I mean, there's really the, 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 the medicine company themselves would be uh, responsible for the effectiveness and the safety of that medication uh, as an individual company. A lot of these places, they, they have va- the vaccines are like, they have the immunity for the vaccines now and stuff like that doesn't make any sense. They can't stand behind that. But the Iver, the Ivermectin and some of these other things that, that they're saying um, the, and when I was deployed, we took a, we took a, a medication called uh, um, it, it was sort of like uh, uh, hydroxychloroquine and, and some of these other drugs, uh, but it was uh, prescribed for malaria. And these are, were the type of drugs that uh, the military and the president was trying to talk about, but everyone made fun of them um, because of their type of detergent type of effect inside of the blood. And these are, these are issued to the military when they go out to prevent uh, communicable diseases right. in some a, of these locations. It's not just a treatment for malaria, but it's also a, a, a preventative medicine yeah. as well. Yeah. And it's, it's the standard for the military for that preventative medication. They issue it to each soldier to prevent malaria and other communicable diseases. Right, like the, India, like Udar Paresh was giving out packages to their citizenry. Their government in India uh, was giving out like all your citizens, you were getting like medicine packs and it had a bunch of different things in it. They didn't publicize what was in it. It, It's Mm -hmm. all been under wraps, confidential information, but I'm kind of like wondering along those lines, like, is that something that in your mind, the federal government, even being the libertarian viewing the federal government's role in things as being very small, do you think that that is like 
a valid role of the federal government? No. And, you know, and that's limiting uh, business. That's limiting innovation, too. And I don't think that's right for the government to be limiting any type of, of growth or innovation that we could possibly have, any breakthroughs. And, that, and that's potentially what's happening. The doxycycline was the name of the drug I was prescribed while I, or they give you while you're deployed in these, in these locations. All right, James, sorry. Would, no, you're good. Uh, back to the original question about the federal government and what is their role in this, right? So the idea is, is that they do actually have a role, but that's communication and transparency. So they can gather data from all the states. They can find out what really is causing the deaths. We saw some conflict of, okay, if he died in an accident, but he had COVID, do we count it as a COVID death? So we need transparency with those numbers. But the idea is, is that they can actually collect all that data and be transparent with it so that physicians, your local physician, can have accurate data. So the federal government is really just collecting the information and being transparent with it so that we can understand the spread better and how it is spreading across the nation and so that we can have more a unified response. But your local physicians are going to be the ones that actually make those decisions for you. Well, not for you, but uh, on the level that they can communicate to you with your response of whatever you, you. Yeah, correct. Yeah. What they recommend to you. So, so let's uh, let's shift gears. Let's uh, let's hope to God we've left COVID nineteen in the in the uh, rearview mirror, um, and we can look forward to runaway inflation. Um, oh, <laughs> as of right now, uh, you can still get a pretty good uh, mortgage uh, note, uh, but the house you buy, the price the price has gone uh, gone bonkers. Labor's expensive. Materials are expensive. If you try to buy a used car, you're paying 20% more than you were last year. Uh, and in uh, Dakota's uh, research for the, uh, for the show, the show notes that, by the way, are available to the patrons, and they were emailed out earlier or messaged out earlier today in the uh, super secret uh, BHOL uh, Patreon uh, group, uh, 7.5% is, uh, is the inflation that we experienced last year. Uh, James, you're our, you're our new senator. How, how are you saving my butt from, uh, from, from losing all my savings? So I'm absolutely glad you brought up this question because it's very relevant and it's very relevant to Hoosiers and their budgets. My promise is to not pass any deficit spending. Todd Young is absolutely ridiculous and we can attack him on this issue. He's going to blame it on a lot of other issues. He's already done that, but the responsibility falls back onto him. He's the second worst deficit spender. We can make a difference as Hoosiers by putting someone in with more fiscal sanity. And what I mean by that is Washington is on a crazy spending spree. We can't even call it budgets at this point. And Todd Young is doing just that. He's spending the money and being irresponsible for future generations. These debts that we're occurring are going to absolutely affect our future generations. And it's wrong. And we need to take responsibility now. And we need to have an ax now. So my first promise is... Deficit spending. I'm not going to pass any uh, budget that goes into deficit spending. But inflation is affecting us in real time. You know, I talk about on the campaign trail, I was filling up for $30 my gas tank when I first started in July. Now I just filled up for $37. So we're seeing it in very real time how it's affecting us. And that's going to be something that resonates with Hoosiers. And if we can connect Todd Young to it, which we can because there's very clear dots that I've already made and I could attack him on the debate stage right now today and show Hoosiers what he has done for their budgets, which is this inflation rate, we can show Hoosiers that there's a better way, a more responsible way, and a more sane way to do our finances in Washington, D.C. What do you think could have been done differently to curb the inflation? I mean, it's the spending budgets, right? So when we look at that deficit spending, 
we're just passing anything at this point. You know, they give me a little bit, I give them a little bit and it ends up to be more government and bigger spending. So the more we reduce our government and the uh, interactions it has and the responsibility it has. So the multiple stimulus bills correct. in, in the Trump cycle, the first I mean, it one, goes, yeah, yeah, Trump, Biden, et cetera. Yeah. So all of those stimulus bills, the, the, the infrastructure bill, I assume had, infrastructure it, bill opposition to the, what just passed there as well. Um, but I mean, that's the pattern of Washington, D.C. It doesn't matter if you're Republican or Democrat. They're both looking at big government, more spending. We need to reduce that as libertarians. We need to show Hoosiers there's a better way and a more responsible way to handle uh, budgeting. And that will lower inflation rates. All right. Same question to you, Will. Uh, inflation, 7.5%. Um, what, are, what are your thoughts on it? Print or go burr. <laughs> yeah. It, they just keep printing money. And the federal government knows exactly what's happening too, because as the inflation goes up, the tax rate goes up and they, they receive more money because everything costs more now. So as this goes up, the government's collecting more of our tax dollars too during this time. Um, really, we hurt ourselves over the last couple of years with all these shutdowns and mandates. Uh, and we've seen that with, with a lot of uh, sporadic empty shelves and things like that starting to happen too now. Um, but I, I think a lot with the, uh, the truckers starting to move through, I think the media is going to try to focus on that and try to say that some of those sh- empty shelves are from that too, of course. But we know it's because we've messed up our own supply chains and shutdowns have affected uh, overall supply chains and our ports have been also messed with over the last months. And uh, all of that foreign dependence of some of these items coming in has been slowed down as well. But that 7.5% is, is absolutely... Uh, that's unacceptable as citizens. We shouldn't be accepting that. And there's no real clear way to, to, to change that debt to income ratio either, or try to, to smash down this inflation rate, uh, right now from any of our legislators who are in office. They don't have a plan and they haven't been uh, opposing any of these spending bills at all. Very often the average employee is going to get a, maybe a 3%. Raise right three to four percent raise, but if you got seven percent inflation, you're going to go backwards as your household unless you participate in the Great Resignation and you end up changing jobs, which is not particularly helpful when you're trying to tr- keep shelves stocked, right? Exactly. It's uh, it's it's all counterproductive. Families are suffering. I mean, uh, food supplies are. I mean, everyone right now is filling the pinch, and if you aren't, you probably you know you're probably doing pretty good financially. But most average people, they're filling the pinch right now. Would it be skeptical to think that the government's trying to inflate their way out of a big debt hole they have? That could very well help once the inflation gets under control. Um, they'll have a huge pile of money once uh, you know some of these taxes and some of these things get uh, get collected and we see how much is ac- exactly there. But I think that we'll see a, a larger amount than what we uh, go into this next fiscal year and what would you expect? Yeah. The uh, well, looking at our peeking into our chat room, uh, longtime boss hog uh, viewer Joe Tompkins uh, reminds us that twenty less years in Afghanistan could have solved the, some of this inflation as well, uh, which is a perfect segue into the uh, the third main topic that we had uh, we had outlined, and that was that was to deal with foreign policy. Uh, Joe Biden did withdraw troops from Afghanistan, and it wasn't uh, it wasn't viewed as having worked out well. Uh, it's kind of a sloppy uh, a sloppy exit, but. That said, 20 years in, it's the first time anybody's actually accomplished anything even close to withdraw. So, uh, Will, looking in the rearview mirror at Afghanistan and how, how the United States exited that, yeah. do, you have, do you have thoughts? 
yeah, having a personal investment there myself from serving in Afghanistan during that conflict, um, it, it was really upsetting and depressing to see the way that the current administration handled that withdrawal. And I think a lot of people were really uh, upset and, and, you know, and rightfully so at, at the administration for, for making and, you know, moving so quickly on that and leaving so much behind without it really any explanation as to why. Um, when we first went into Afghanistan, we disarmed a whole country. Uh, we took away their Second Amendment rights for the most part, other than hunting and shotguns and things like that. But these people didn't have uh, means or ways to the small arms capability that we do here in the United States. And that is a great asset for us because we can organize uh, against any invading force and be able to come become soldiers or, ourselves if we need to, to be able to fight an invading force. However, Afghans, after we set up their government for them, after we set up their army for them, after we set up their police force for them, we we did not, you know, give them their arms back or means to protect themselves. So when their government failed and their army failed and their uh, police forces failed, the citizens had nothing to protect themselves against an invading force like the Taliban. And had they had this capability, I don't believe that the Taliban would have, would have been capable of that type of, of advancement and, and um, you know, organization to come back into that country and take over the way that it did. So unfortunately, us moving away so quickly left that void and us telling everybody that we were going to do it so quickly left that void into a disarmed country that that completely got taken back over. It was a huge upset. It was a huge, uh, huge missteps were taken by the by the current administration and Department of Defense. And we've learned huge lessons from that, I think, uh, to never do that again in that fashion. Yeah, we said that in 1972, though, as well. Well, yeah, and it, that's what we would hope. And and when we left Afghanistan, the Biden and, and uh, or the Obama and Biden administration said that we were out of Iraq uh, when I w- was deployed to Kuwait, and we in fact had troops in, in that country at the time cleaning up the mess that the contractors couldn't clean up too. Um, so. You know, there were operations going on that time uh, as well, but, but it, it, yeah, it was just a mess. Yeah, for sure. James, it's uh, it's all yours, man. Yeah. So, I mean, it just comes back to exit strategy and it was very unclear of our exit strategy all along. And this is part of the reason why we need to look at why Congress needs to take back the act of war. Um, when we originally went in, nobody expected it does to be there 20 years. So when Congress should take back their powers of war. And they, if they're going to do something like that, we're going to look at why are we there and what's the exit strategy? Because ultimately we need that exit strategy. There should have been no reason we were there 20 years. And that's something that's absolutely ridiculous. And it's an overstep. We need to stop policing the world and we need uh, better decisions when it comes to um, military aspects. Yeah. So we, as libertarians, we talk about, you know, getting out of a lot of foreign wars, um, Afghanistan was obviously a huge area that we were in, but staying on this and whenever we're talking about taking troops out of other foreign conflicts, uh, what do you think could have been done differently with the withdrawal from Afghanistan? Do you think it could have been done differently? Do you think it, it could have gone smoother or, um, you just had to rip the bandaid off and get everyone out there? What do you think, James? I mean, besides being done earlier, it should have been done way earlier. Um, at some point, we just have to exit. And unfortunately, 
the way we exited was not well done. Uh, we should have had a little bit more strategy with that. We shouldn't leave our resources over there like we did. But yeah, there definitely needs to be more clear exit strategies when it comes to uh, military action. And that's something that did not happen. Um, and honestly, 20 years, we could have had a lot of people make that same decision. And nobody made that decision and nobody did it well. So it went uh, through four presidencies. Correct. Right? I mean, it was it was Bush, Obama, Trump, and Biden by correct. the time, you know, from when we started and, to when we exited. And that's my point is, is, I mean, Biden finally made that decision. And we can argue that how he did it was wrong, but at some point it had to be done. Yeah, so I know, Will, you kind of touched on that a little bit with keeping the populace armed a bit there, but do you think as we pull, if you're in the Senate and we go to pull more troops out, do you think we need to just do it like we did, or do you think we need uh, to do it differently? No, there should have been a systematic approach to that. I don't know, you know, and their intelligence, the, the military's intelligence, I mean, they have eyes on the region. Uh, they're being informed each day of what's happening too, and we don't know what types of, of other things were happening in the region. Now we know. Now we can see uh, what's happening in the region where these, this shift of resources is kind of uh, uh, sort of going. Um, but taking our troops out so fast and not handing that off to those Afghan army and the Afghan police and the government themselves, I think um, – that really left a, a lot of folks standing there without really understanding, you know, what their role was in that handoff. There wasn't really any strategy to hand off those reins to these folks. And when we left these large facilities like Bagram and Kandahar, um, when we had, you know, 40, 50,000 people at one time living on some of these bases like that, these are huge places. When you just completely vacate places like that, um, that's a lot of facilities. That's a lot of uh, living area and things that the local community is going to start getting into and things. Um, but you just disappear and all of this, all of the equipment's there and a lot of these things are there. And there's really no way, there was really no uh, structure to exit out, you know, fluidly it was just a it was they did yank it off and it's like it's like running down the road in a truck and missing a shift right it's just just a big thud Mm -hmm. all right um james you (laughs) this is this is a tough topic you it's uh we're gonna get into the ukraine a little bit there's there's some big tension and obviously depending upon what committee you serve in in the senate you've got you know you've got some oversight responsibilities but you also have the power to declare war, and there are folks that are that are starting to to brace for some American involvement at some level, uh, if nothing else, just declaring sanctions with Russia invading the Ukraine today this this week. You you've got to look forward a little bit, and you know today's March. You're not a senator yet, but what's it look like if you're Senator James and you know January of 2023, and you're you're faced with this conflict? It's a great question. I'm glad you asked. First and foremost, we should always seek a peaceful resolution. Um, Next, as a nation, we cannot make a unilateral decision to go to war with Russia or any nation. We have to work with the international uh, community and look at what sanctions need to happen and look for an actual plan and solution. Uh, Same thing. President Biden cannot make a unilateral decision. We need Congress to take the back the acts of uh, power when it comes to declaring war. So that cannot be a unilateral decision as a nation. It cannot be a unilateral decision as Biden. Uh, 
if that came across my desk, I would, um, for me to even consider something, it would look a lot like Desert Storm, where we have a clear entry, a clear plan of action, and most importantly, a clear exit plan. Because the exit plan, we're not going to spend 20 more years in a nation with military action. That's absolutely ridiculous, and we just cannot do that. So with those three things being considered, looking at the international community, and looking for peaceful resolutions. That's what we need to look forward to. Sometimes military action seems like a glacier in the water and it just can't be avoided, but we don't have to be the Titanic. We can stare away from it and we can look for those peaceful resolutions. And as a Senator, that's foremost. My priority is how do we have those peaceful resolutions? Will, what do you say? Um, you know, we don't need to get in, into more war. Uh, we've had a lot of war over the last 20 years. And um, our involvement in Ukraine, uh, we have a, a State Department and embassy uh, locations there in Ukraine. Uh, we do have individuals who uh, protect those facilities and things like that. And there's, it's been limited now. A lot of these folks have been exited the com- uh, country. Uh, they've evacuated a lot of those folks. Um, th- th- you know, Outside of our our foreign uh, diplomacy with Ukraine, that's our assets in Ukraine right now. Um, And really, the Ukraine army, uh, the Ukraine citizens, and all, and they they have the the ability to arm themselves too. They have the Second Amendment. Um, It was it's, and this has been something that's been talked about uh, for a number of weeks now. We we have known that this this could have been imminent today could have could have happened at any moment over these last months that that the positioning has been in place um i know the damage done from uh deploying troops overseas i've seen it i've dealt with the veterans sector um and we have to be able to take care of these individuals and how are we going to create more veterans if we can't even take care of the ones that we have right now um so U.S. getting involved on the ground outside of, you know, outside of the State Department and our, you know, assets there, I think it would not be a good idea um, at all uh, to be, uh, you know, outside of what the other nations are putting forth as well in this uh, alliance that we have. A lot of times the United States has put a lot more into these uh, conflicts than what a lot of these other nations have. And we don't have them. We don't have the money. We're in, we're in a huge debt right now. Uh, and we can't even take care of the veterans we've created over the last 20 years. So why are we even talking about getting into a conflict uh, of, of this magnitude uh, overseas, especially after pulling out of Afghanistan under those terms of, that were ending wars. And then now there's all this talk about getting back involved again. So I don't think the sanctions are going to do anything to affect Russia. I don't think that anything that we can do as far as uh, diplomacy is going to, um, it's, it's started. Uh, you know what I mean? We've so let me, let me back up just for a second. You don't think that any American sanctions would have an effect on Russia or change their behavior? I think that they would temporarily, but overall they would find a way around those sanctions and they would, they would, you know, they would get around them. Uh, they would adapt and overcome those. Um, you know, I, I really don't know what the answer is. It's diplomacy. You know, it's being able to understand what exactly uh, they want and, and what they, you know, accomplish everything on the ground. There's really no clear um, 
objective other than to, to, to take that land um, for Russia right now. And, and they've declared this, um, these two states sovereign themselves and not able to now, you know, Ukraine isn't able to join the forces of that alliance because of, of that dispute right now. They've, they've said that they've created that and they, and, and they've sanctioned that themselves. So I, I think a lot of this um, we're looking, we're looking at this uh, over the last weeks and we've been preparing for uh, we've been, the media has been asking for this to be happening rather than uh, actually getting you know, things prepared in, in the region for the country to defend itself. They have an ascending army. They have citizens who could protect themselves. And I watched those Russian uh, trucks move over that border uh, uncontended uh, in those checkpoint locations. And, you know, that's an absolute travesty to see those checkpoint locations empty as well. So looking beyond foreign policy, I guess this is a, this is a conversation for each of you. And I, I want to hear what your number one priority would be as a U.S. senator. What's the one one issue that you expect to advocate for or the way that you expect to use the office of Senate uh, for the people of Indiana? We'll start with you, Will. What's what's top priority number one? Somebody asks you why you're running, what you want to get accomplished. What's the top tip of the spear? Um, absolutely uh, financial stability. And right now with the deficit we have and the businesses that we've heard over the last couple of years with the shutdowns and mandates, um, you know, the service industry has been destroyed. Uh, a lot of these fast food restaurants are struggling to even keep staff in because they've moved on somewhere else. They're working in the warehouses and the manufacturing areas now. So it's been really tough to get the service area back and fulfilled again. And we see a lot of this uh, increases in wages and things happening at those levels, too, to try to entice people to come back to those positions. Um, I think that we've hurt our economy uh, tremendously over the last couple of years, and we really need to focus on building those small businesses up, giving them, we've seen during the emergency orders that we can forgo some of this permitting and forgo some of the certifications and some of these things that the agencies require for small businesses to, to, to try to do that at a federal level, to focus more on the growth of the, of the smaller and medium-sized businesses as well, to give them a boost. So we can start becoming more of a production and manufacturing country rather than a uh, consumer society. Tip of the spear for Senator James Senak. What's it going to be? Yeah, so definitely, you know, I'm out here to serve Hoosiers. And if I'm going to push one issue in the beginning, it's something that I can get done, right? So I'm going to be able to work with both sides. And I believe that we can really change the conversation when it comes to my vet care program, because this is taking an intrusive and wasteful program like the VA that has failed our veterans across the nation. And it's utilizing a libertarian approach and a solution. And when we talk with the Republicans and we talk with the Democrats, we can change the conversation about how we get our care to our veterans. And it's a simple solution. It's removing the wasteful program, but allowing for a veteran's personal care account. And so what this does is it takes that wasteful funding and still gives it directly to the veteran so that they can have medical freedom. They can be able to choose the physician that best meets their needs. They can choose the location that's most convenient for them. When I first started uh, running, I was working at Bucks and Brews. It's a local brewery. And um, one of my regulars comes in and he said, okay, I know you announced. What are you going to do for me as a veteran? And I was talking to him and I said, you know, I mean, libertarians, we push for gun rights. We push for individual freedom. He's like, oh, that's fine. All that is great. But I want to know what you're going to do for veterans. And so I was um, using my think tank. I was using my team. And I said, 
what can we do? And the idea is, is that with all this wasteful funding that's currently being just thrown out, we can better utilize that to serve through uh, the veterans personal care account. So that money gets redirected to them and they have the freedom to choose how to utilize that. And then there is a second portion that goes to the long-term care needs, or let's say they lost a limb and there's expenses with that. So there is a second portion, but it eliminates a lot of the middle ground. It eliminates a whole program and it's definitely a libertarian solution. And I think uh, Republicans and Democrats can get on board with this and we could come up with an actual tangible way that we can make a difference for Hoosiers and for uh, our whole nation. Fantastic. We are at the point in the program where we're at the end of our uh, our scheduled issues. So we uh, we traditionally go around the room and we have final thoughts. And this is uh, this is where everybody gets to uh, clean up anything they left out, anything they didn't find a way to get to it quite yet. Uh, it's an opportunity for producer Zach to ask any questions that he's thought of as a uh, as an undecided voter over yonder. You got any questions for the candidates? You got no anything idea. to plug? No, nothing to plug. Be safe going home. You want to thank Dakota for keeping the lights on this week. And for not getting called out in the middle of the show, because I thought for sure his phone was going to buzz and he was going to bolt on it. Dakota, a preemptive thank you for tomorrow morning when I wake up and my power stayed on all night. <laughs> <laughs> be, thank, be thankful if you do your job and keep my power on all night. Yeah. yeah. Like, we still have an hour left of ice. It's still, or I was going to say, it's still early. <laughs> and last time he kept us up to date on how close we were to, to like not good things happening and I almost, it would have enjoyed ignorance. <laughs> we were on the we were on the absolute brink of the entire town going dark all day during the uh, during the big storm. All right. Well, thanks for uh, thanks for doing your job, Mister uh, Mister Producer Guy. I try. All right, James. What uh, what else do we need to know? How do we follow you? You've I I know campaign the uh, the state chairman Evan McMahon is going to slap you guys both around if you don't ask somebody for money at some <laughs> point and tell people how to contribute to your campaign. How? Uh, how do people learn more about you? How do they find your full issues tab? How do they give money? How, how's all this work? Yeah, definitely. So as a politician, you already said it. I wouldn't be a politician if I didn't ask for money. Uh, that could be done on my website, which is www.seniac4senate.com. That's www.seniacforsenate.com. And there is a donate button on there. So please... Uh, we are going to utilize that money so that we can reach as many Hoosiers with a libertarian message as possible. My final thoughts is that libertarians, we need solutions and we need tangible solutions that are presented to Hoosiers and that can reach across the aisle and bring in voters. Uh, we're not going to get, you know, 11, rainwater did that by his 11% by reaching across the aisles and bringing people into the freedom message. So we need that message that allows for individuals from all walks of life to understand that freedom is going to be value for them. And it's going to keep an intrusive government out of their way. So let's uh, message our, our branding correctly and let's do this correct and show Hoosiers that we are a tangible party and we can win elections both on the federal level and the local level. And this is the year to do that. And I'm excited to shine the spotlight on a lot of the local elections. So please consider me for the nomination for the U S Senate race. Uh, it's just a little bit over a week away and I'm absolutely thrilled for next weekend. So thank you for having me here and I really appreciate your time. Glad to, uh, glad to have uh, all the libertarian candidates on again. Will Henry, tell us uh, tell us what we've missed and how to uh, how to how to donate, learn more, support, et cetera, et cetera. 
Uh, you can uh, go to my website, williamhenry.us. I'm on Facebook. I'm on Instagram. Uh, getting uh, getting more active on Twitter and some of these other locations. Um, I am, uh, you know, I'm just really excited to be able to have this opportunity to run uh, again. After the rainwater uh, success, I think that, you know, a lot of people in the state are really open to the libertarian message. They're understanding the principles. They're understanding what we're about, more personal freedom, less government. And we're showing that, you know, we can offer uh, the, the best and perform the best of what these other parties uh, cannot and that what they've been promising for such a long time. Um, they haven't been delivering, uh, as, as we've seen with the constitutional carry in the state house, uh, here recently as well. Um, really, I've worked a lot, uh, you know, with these offices, uh, Todd Young's staff, uh, the, the senator's staff, Joe Donnelly, uh, you know, even Dick Luger when I was taking photos for the National Guard. I've got a lot of experience, uh, at what these offices do and, and some of the things that they conduct and the committees and the commissions that, that they, you know, work on and how this legislation and, and how these things move through the government. Um, I have that practical experience. I have, you know, uh, the military experience and the administrative experience at the state level to be able to handle that uh, type of organization and movement at uh, Capitol Hill. And, you know, I just, I just want people to know that, you know, I'm going to fight for them at, at Washington, D.C. I'm going to do, you know, what's right and, and do the bidding of the people, not what I want as an individual so much. It's, it's about what the people uh, want and it's about what they need to be represented properly and they're not getting that representation in washington dc and i want to bring that representation all right d squared um i have a couple things first of all i want to thank you guys for coming tonight this was a a good episode um and uh, also jeremiah i had a facebook memory come up that said that uh, it was like three years ago last week we moved into this studio uh for the first time we were having chris spangle on for the inaugural episode. Yes. And everything looked wonky. There was no decorations, no American flag. It looked naked. Nothing on the walls. Um, But with that being said, I think that it's great. I think that I wanted to say thank you to all of our Patreon supporters and all the people who listen, um, who have stuck with us. You know, three years is a, a, seems like an accomplishment to have our own studio, to be moved out of my spare bedroom at my house. (laughs) Thank God, so, Dakota says. <laughs> yeah, so I think that's... I don't know. I think it was really cool that you had cool uh, every elected official in town rolling through your your hallway upstairs. Even though we, you know, we cut it pretty slim some months, but this is a, you know, wanted to say thank you to those folks. It's going to it's gonna be okay. Uh, I do want to make a point uh, to, to the audience. I, I don't know that we have a new audience that doesn't always listen to us uh, coming from the LP side that may not catch every episode. And we have a number of folks that listen every week, regardless, uh, all over the country. And then, of course, we have our, our local contingent as well. Uh, these gentlemen are running for the Libertarian nomination for U.S. Senate. That'll be picked on Saturday, uh, March 5th, uh, by the Libertarian Party delegates. Uh, those are sent by the, uh, by joining the Libertarian Party and going through the delegate process from your county. Uh, they are not on the May primary, so the Democrats and Republicans will spend taxpayer dollars. And that's how they are going to become get to your November ballot. Uh, these guys raise their own money, spend their own money, uh, rent their own space to elect to to determine who's going to have that ballot access spot. Uh, that's uh, de- and you know th- they're going to work through it as a uh, as a party uh, in their their own private function. 
uh, and you know, a couple hundred people are going to make the determination as to who's, who's there in the fall. But uh, even if you can't be a delegate, but you liked what you heard, reach out to them, and I'm sure that they'll find ways uh, ways to let you help support them. So, I want to thank you both for taking the time to do it. It's awesome. Been a candidate four times myself. It is not easy, and it gets uh, you know. Uh, always good to get the reps and uh, it's important for the process that you guys are running. So thank you guys very much. Two little uh, pieces of uh, housekeeping on my side. Uh, Number one, our buddy Kyle Robbins, many time uh, uh, member of the show. Uh, He's starting his racing season this week. He texted me today. He's on I-75 heading down to, uh, down to Florida Mm -hmm. running the sprint car. So he'll be, uh, he'll be running down in the uh, short tracks outside of St. Pete when the Indy cars are going. So Newcastle zone is, uh, is back on the, uh, on the short oval. Uh, and we did our we did our cruise, and the folks at Caterpie, James Woo Waterson, gave us uh, hooked us up with those Caterpie shoelaces. Oh yeah, I finally put mine on this week. I wore them the entire cruise; they were incredible, awesome. I didn't know what to expect. I'm going to buy another pair of my other, other pair of shoes. They were fantastic. Yeah. yeah, I have a pair of like old work boots that I that I wear like doing yard work, and I think that I'm going to actually buy a, a long pair for those. Like yeah. they're pretty, they're really nice. For, they for keep like, your shoe tight. Yeah, but they're also easy to slip on and off. For they're walk they're like shoes, adult they're the Velcro. Best. They're yeah. the best for walk around shoes. Oh uh, yeah, yeah for just like my around the house. I, I wear them to work, and I I've got them on right now, and they're I, I'm like a child. I've got one set of blue and one set of orange because <laughs> my running shoes and that. So yeah, people like think I have two different shoes on, but yeah, they're the best. So yeah, well, this is not a paid endorsement or anything. They did give a, a promo code, and I'm sure Zach can drop it in the chat. And we've uh, we've shared it a few different times. But after uh, after J- Woo twenty two Woo twenty two, you go to the yeah, Caterpie okay. website and type that in, uh, and you get twenty or twenty two percent off. It's 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 a heck of a deal. I'm uh, I'm impressed. Very cool product. Want to give them a shout out. They uh, they sent some product our way. I've actually had a chance to test it now, and uh, it's pretty cool. With that, we will uh, we'll be back next week Thursday uh, Thursday night. We'll be in March. And uh, we're going to have our annual physical checkup with uh, with our founding uh, founding dude, Chris Spangle. We'll see you over on the other side with him.